This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Daily Digest on the Bigger Picture with me, T. Xiao Eek and Lim Su. And today we have one story for you. The Women's Aid Organization recently released a policy brief that explores the prevalence of sexual and gender-based violence among refugee communities in Malaysia. This brief also highlights the obstacles that refugee women face in seeking help and accessing justice and protection um, and also provides recommendations for stakeholders to solve these issues. So we will be discussing this um, policy brief with WAO's Natasha Dandavati. Yes, and if you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us um, about this topic, you can tweet us at BFM Radio or you can also WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. So the WAO's latest policy brief paints a stark and troubling picture for women refugees in Malaysia. Um, the paper titled Sexual and Gender-Based Violence Among uh, Refugee communities in Malaysia concluded that women refugees face a significant risk of sexual and gender-based violence or SGBV as it's commonly known uh, and this is due to reasons such as their lack of legal status in the country, the normalisation of violence within refugee communities and the inaccessibility of protection and justice mechanisms. So all of these issues are further exacerbated by xenophobia against refugees which seems to have become worse or at least it's come to the fore during this COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, yeah, so according to this Paper. As of October 2020, there are 178,450 refugees and asylum seekers registered with the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, in Malaysia. So let me repeat that it's over 178,000. Mm. Now, 32% of refugees here are women and approximately 26% are under the age of 18. So that's a pretty big number. And um, if we look back in our history, the first refugee refugees to arrive on our shores were the Vietnamese who began to arrive by boat in Malaysia um, back in 1975. Um, currently though, the majority of refugees here are from Myanmar and the increase in the number of refugees is the result of the ongoing persecution of the Rohingya who are denied Burmese uh, citizenship and they are regularly subjected to violence at the hands of the military government. And another thing that we've spoken about many times um, across the station here is that Malaysia is not a signatory to the 19. 51 Refugee Convention, nor to the 1967 Protocol relating to the status of refugees. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, we also lack any kind of comprehensive framework for refugees and asylum seekers. And if we look at the 1951 Convention, that establishes the principle that refugees should not be forcibly returned to a territory where their lives of freedom would be threatened. And here is where the UNHCR plays a role in pursuing international protection and to ensure that states are both aware of and act on their obligations to protect refugees and persons seeking asylum. So the reality is that refugees in Malaysia, including those who are registered with the UNHCR, they're treated as illegal immigrants mm. when they're not. It's a, a two very different um, issues, two very different communities. But the lack of a legal framework results in a failure to recognise those rights of refugees that you said, Suen, such as the right to work, the right to education and healthcare. And there's also the more direct violations of refugees 
refugee rights, such as through abuses in immigration detention and in the form of sexual and gender-based violence. So in essence, what WAO's paper really highlights is how a refugee person's lack of legal status in Malaysia intensifies their vulnerability to violence because they are left unable to access treatment or justice for reasons that include fear of arrest. And if we look at the, uh, the lack of the right to work, that also hinders access to legal sources of livelihood and employment opportunities. And then it pushes refugees into the informal sector for work. And yeah. that's where they're often taken advantage of. They're subjected to abuses without any protection from mistreatment. Yeah. And without the right to work, many refugee women are left to depend on their partners or their community. And they are made even more vulnerable to sexual and gender-based violence at home. Um, additionally, fears of arrest, detention and police extortion often deter refugee women from reporting violence um, and that leaves them trapped in unsafe situations. Yep, so the paper breaks down these issues into five main areas and we are going to explore both the findings as well as the recommendations presented in the paper with Natasha Dandavanti, the head of campaigns at the Women's Aid Organisation. Um, Natasha is joining us over Skype right now. Welcome Natasha, thanks for speaking with us today. So um, getting straight to it, the first issue raised is that refugee women are at increased risk of sexual and gender-based violence due to their lack of legal status. So what were the report's findings on this? So at the outset, we know that Malaysia lacks an overall legal framework um, for addressing the issue of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, And we're also not a party to the 1951 Refugee Convention. And so as a result of that, um, there are an overall lack of protections um, in, in the law uh, applying to refugee, uh, all refugees, and um, refugee women become especially vulnerable to violence uh, as a result of that lack of protection. Um, so the first way in which we see this issue is that uh, refugees don't have the right to work in Malaysia. And so um, many refugee women are forced into the informal workforce, uh, and then they actually become vulnerable to sexual and gender-based violence at the hands of their employers as a result of that. Um, and when they endure such violence in the workplace, um, because they're, for one thing, very dependent on that source of income, and secondly, um, they're not protected by the law. So they often don't have avenues for reporting that violence and either just have to continue to endure it or then leave, uh, leave their place of employment, which leads to their further economic vulnerability. The other aspect of that is that we see, because of the uh, the lack of legal status um, and the lack of ability to participate in the formal workforce, uh, refugee women also become economically dependent on their partners and then vulnerable to further violence at home. So uh, as a result of there's tremendous financial strain on refugee families, uh, and then where there is domestic violence already, you know, women are not able to leave that, that situation because they don't have their own uh, financial independence and stability. And so they basically have nowhere to go in those situations. So we have a few recommendations we are, are making to the government with regards to this first issue. So the first recommendation is to adopt an overall comprehensive legal framework for refugees and asylum seekers so that they're no longer treated as illegal immigrants and they have the same uh, basic human rights protections uh, that everyone else in Malaysia does. Um, And that would also enable refugee women who are survivors of sexual and gender-based violence to go and seek help without fearing that they're going to be arrested or detained when they do. The second recommendation, which is 
follows from the first one is that the government should allow refugees to work legally. So this would avoid refugees from being pushed into the informal workforce. And uh, when they are facing abuse um, by their employers, they actually have avenues for recourse um, and don't simply have to endure it or lose their only source of income. Um, so those are the primary recommendations around that first issue. And are there any case studies that you can share which exemplifies this issue? Yes. So we have run several workshops in refugee communities and um, have heard the experiences of many women who um, have gone through abuse at the hands of their partners or at the hands of their employers. So one particular case involved a refugee woman who was employed informally um, at a restaurant you know, she faced discrimination and harassment from her supervisor at her place of employment. And then she was actually attacked one night by some of her colleagues who were local. And as a result of of not having uh, legal status and any of the employment protections, uh, she actually could not go to the police and get the help she needed. And so she had to, to leave the employment and her employer had actually withheld wages she was not able to collect those back wages and she lost her source of income. So it's a very common issue that refugee women actually do face. That's just really awful to hear. And you know, I think employees use the threat of police action against their refugee workers, even though they themselves are going against the law by hiring them, uh, them as well. Um, in this case, you know, would it be possible to take action against the employer for hiring a refugee, for example? That is a great question. And unfortunately, the thing is, who would really report in that situation? Because the individuals who are being employed uh, are not able to report those abuses. And it's unlikely that um, somebody who is formally or legally employed by the employer is going to go then and, and make a report against their own employer. So it's it's unlikely that these employers are often being held accountable in any way for hiring, um, you know, employees informally and for the abuses that they commit against them. Hmm. So, Natasha, just moving on to the second issue, the report raised, um, which is uh, uh, about violence within refugee commu- uh, within refugee communities is normalized, which then contributes to sexual and gender-based violence. Could you elaborate on this point and also discuss WAO's recommendations to tackle this issue? Sure. So in conducting several workshops with women from different refugee communities, we see some commonalities um, of there being very deep-rooted patriarchal attitudes and social norms. And these sort of serve to normalize the violence. And so what we've seen uh, in some of the communities, like among the Rohingya community, we, we do see that it's regarded as fairly normal for domestic violence to be taking place. And when women actually seek help from outside their family and members of their community, they're actually discouraged from making it an issue or talking about it publicly or reporting it. In one of our workshops conducted in uh, September of last year, the participants were asked about who has the power in their families. Uh, And this workshop was, again, with Rohingya women. And so the responses were that the father has power over the mother, uh, the husband has power over the wife and children, and that this power was actually granted not only by society, but by women themselves. So we kind of see these patriarchal norms being perpetuated by both uh, men and women in the societies. And there's kind of a lack of any education or intervention that changes that. Um, So even even things like, you know, um, people saying that if you have a happy marriage, that 
fighting is a necessary part of that. Or from women in the Somali community, uh, some participants shared that if your husband doesn't hit you, then you must be patient. So there almost is an expectation of that. So I think, you know, the most important thing with regards to cultural norms and, and the normalization of violence is really outreach and education um, and creating awareness on the part of both women of their rights um, and the fact that they can live and should be able to live free from, from violence um, and awareness on the part of perpetrators and communities at large. Um, so this is something that could be facilitated by UNHCR and partner NGOs who could actually go into these communities and conduct trainings and workshops in the relevant languages to, to really send the message to communities that this violence is wrong and it should not be part of their daily lives. On the line with us now is Natasha Dandavati, the head of campaigns at the Women's Aid Organization. She's helping us to break down the findings and recommendations from WAO's latest policy brief, which is titled Sexual and Gender-Based Violence Among Refugee Communities in Malaysia. We're just going to head into a quick ad break now, but don't go anywhere. Natasha will be staying on the line and we'll be back shortly to discuss some barriers that refugee women in Malaysia face in seeking help for sexual and gender-based violence. If you have anything you'd like to share with us, tweet us at BFM Radio or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Keep it tuned to The Daily Digest, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to The Daily Digest with me, T. Ik and Lim Suen. If you're just joining us, we are discussing how refugee women in Malaysia are at increased risk of gender-based violence, um, while at the same time having limited access to protection and justice. Now, all of this has been highlighted in new policy brief that the Women's Aid Organization has just released. And we're going through the findings with Natasha Dandavati, who is the head of campaigns at the WAO and who helped to write this very important paper. So, Natasha, before the break, we looked at how refugee women face an increased risk of sexual and gender-based violence due to their lack of legal status and also how violence within refugee communities is normalised, which also contributes to this issue. Now, let's go on to the third issue that the report highlights, which is that refugee women have limited access to protection and justice mechanisms and uh, also to support services for sexual and gender-based violence. So what barriers do refugee women face here? So there are a couple related issues when it comes to access to protection and justice mechanisms. So for one thing, we see that there's a lack of SOPs on uh, the police and welfare department support for refugee survivors of sexual and gender-based violence. So although it is the case that the Domestic Violence Act and the Penal Code apply to refugees, in practice, uh, the implementation is inconsistent at best when it comes to refugee survivors. So um, at times, these individuals actually go to make a report and they themselves are questioned and detained or um, they're denied you know, access to protection orders. So um, even though they, they are formally covered under the law, under the Domestic Violence Act and the Penal Code, a lot of times these survivors are not actually getting uh, access to the help they need. We saw this in one case study of a Rohingya woman who went to report uh, basically blackmail and coercion by a partner um, where he was threatening to publish intimate photographs of her without her consent. Um, and when she went to make the police report, she was detained for four hours at the police station before she could even finish lodging the report. And then she was um, denied her right to make the report. Um, and later, although she was she was released from the police questioning, she didn't want to go back and try again because she was 
um, too scared of being detained again. So that's that's a very common experience um, a lot of refugee women survivors face in trying to report violence. Now, I understand that limited safe spaces and shelters for refugee uh, survivors of sexual and gender-based violence just makes this issue worse? Yes. So one of the main issues with regards to shelter is that for JKM shelters, for domestic violence survivors, they actually have to lodge a police report before they can be admitted. And um, as mentioned, because of this issue of uh, constantly facing the threat of arrest and detention, many survivors are reluctant to make a police report against their abusers. And so that means that for a lot of refugee women, those JKM shelters are completely inaccessible as a result of that. And there are, of course, NGO um, and alternative shelters that are not government run, but some of those may have the requirements of being a citizen or in general, they they face kind of resource constraints and they may have a lack of availability and so not having access to government shelters is a really critical um, hindrance to refugee women accessing the, um, the safety and protection they need. And do language barriers also prohibit them from seeking support services? Yes, absolutely. Especially for when it comes to hotline services and other support services, we do see uh, absolutely a shortage of interpreters. Um, and we have the same issue at police stations where if survivors go to make a police report, there is not always uh, an interpreter available to actually take down the report um, in the necessary language. Um, and this is something that we saw um, during the first MCO, I believe, last year, where UNHCR actually um, reached out to the Thalian Haste hotline to make sure that refugees were going to be accommodated as part of that. And although formally the hotline does assist refugees and survivors in a number of different languages. In practice, there were not enough interpreters and not interpreters serving all the languages. And so a lot of refugees during the MCO were not able to actually access uh, the services of Bali and Kasi. So one, one example of this issue was uh, a case study where uh, there was a refugee woman who was raped by somebody from her community. And the perpetrator actually recorded the act and uh, published the video around members of the community. Um, and so this person was referred to WAO for assistance. And there was only one translator available for the particular dialect that this woman spoke. And that translator also only worked on certain days of the week. So it made it very challenging to coordinate um, the information gathering and for her to go to the police station to lodge a report. So eventually with WAO's assistance, we had to have two social workers accompany her and two interpreters present. So finally, she was able to lodge the report, but this was only with significant intervention by WAO. And so many women who don't have that kind of assistance with them or don't know about services like WAOs might try to go and file a report on their own and be completely hindered from doing so because of the lack of interpreter services. I know the report details quite a few recommendations to remedy this particular issue. Could you walk us through them? Sure. So I think the most important thing is that the police and JKM must have very clear SOPs to deal with cases of sexual and gender-based violence among uh, refugee women. And this is particularly important right now during the MCO, because we know that as survivors are isolated at home with their perpetrators, uh, it's even harder to get help. So especially right now, it's important to have very clear guidelines and procedures and clear messaging um, that survivors who need help are going to be able to get it. Um, for shelters, 
it's critical that we remove this requirement of having to file a police report. Um, since again, this effectively bars many refugee women um, who don't want to go to police for fear of arrest and detention from getting the help they need and being able to leave the abusive home. So I think, again, particularly right now, as we enter this uh, next MCO period, um, these two recommendations are are extremely critical to make sure that survivors who are isolated at home with their perpetrators are actually able to get the help they need. So the next issue the report highlights, and this is something we really saw happening last year, is that refugee women face limited access to healthcare services, including those seeking assistance following sexual and gender-based violence. Um, what is causing this? Yeah, so as you know, the OSCCs are are meant to serve survivors of sexual and gender-based violence and to consolidate services so that the survivor can go to one place, which is the hospital emergency department, and get medical treatment and also uh, be able to make a police report under the same roof and be connected to other critical services as well. So there are OSCC guidelines, but uh, in practice, each hospital has their own internal SOPs, um, which vary from hospital to hospital. And so some OSCCs uh, actually require making a police report as a prerequisite to receiving medical services, while others do not. And so again, um, as mentioned before, we have that same issue where filing a, a police report is often something refugee women do not want to do um, or may uh, be fearful of doing because of, of concerns about arrest and detention. Um, so essentially, the, the treatment of refugee women survivors at OSCCs is inconsistent and it varies from hospital to hospital. And then another issue related to access to healthcare is the higher rates for treatment that refugee women are subjected to. Um, so it's actually the case that because of a, a memorandum of understanding between UNHCR and the Ministry of Health, those with a UNHCR card uh, receive a discount of 50% of the foreigner rate at public healthcare facilities. But the issue is that the foreigner rate is already so much higher that even with that 50% discount, it's actually, um, it can be a complete barrier for many refugee women to actually access the healthcare uh, that they need. Um, so we saw one case of that. This is actually the same individual I mentioned a few moments ago who was raped by a member of her community. And so she uh, she was not able to, to hold down informal employment because of a, a chronic health condition she had. And when she saw a doctor, she was told that it would require surgery and that without surgery, um, the infection she had would uh, spread. And so this actually prohibited her from standing for long periods of time um, and being in contact with water for too long. So a lot of the common jobs that refugee women um, might take in the informal work uh, workforce such as food service or cleaning jobs, became unavailable to her. So, you know, that's sort of an example of, of how uh, these higher foreigner rates that refugees are subjected to can actually uh, not only impact their health, but also impact kind of other aspects of their life, like the ability to earn a livelihood. And then finally, another major issue for refugees in accessing healthcare is the risk of being reported to immigration uh, and being detained when they go to seek medical treatment. So there's actually a directive that was issued by the government that requires public hospitals to refer undocumented asylum seekers and migrants to the immigration department. So this means that any refugee woman without a UNHCR card 
who uh, goes to a public hospital to seek treatment for sexual and gender-based violence can be referred to immigration and detained. So, of course, that is a big deterrent for many women to seek help. For this issue, does WAO have any specific recommendations for the Ministry of Health in particular? Yes. So, as I mentioned, because of the kind of the inconsistent guidelines between OSCCs, it would be extremely helpful for the Ministry of Health to introduce some additional guidelines to direct hospital emergency departments on how to handle cases of treatment of refugees, especially when it comes to refugee women, sexual and gender-based violence survivors. And this could help ensure that all refugee survivors are able to access the treatment they need um, without filing a police report and regardless of whether they're able to pay or not. And then the second thing, which is slightly more longer term, would be for the Ministry of Health to amend the treatment rates for refugees to be the same as the local rates. So that cost is no longer a, a complete prohibition to them accessing the treatment they need. So just moving on to the last issue highlighted in the report, and again, this is something we really saw happening last year in particular, which is xenophobia. So that exacerbates sexual and gender-based violence against refugee women and also hinders their ability to seek help. Am I correct? That is correct. And unfortunately, xenophobia against refugees is something I think that's common in many societies and uh, unfortunately common in ours as well. So this is something that we've seen kind of stereotypes and perceptions of refugees as well as migrants as foreigners who are coming in and stealing local jobs, you know, have kind of a culture different to Malaysian culture. And unfortunately, um, I think during the COVID pandemic, that's also been exacerbated. And so this, um, we see this, this type of xenophobia and these attitudes um, from the public, as well as sometimes, unfortunately, from the police and even gov- government representatives. And so it's something that just adds another dimension of difficulty to refugee women who are trying to seek help. You know, I, I mentioned earlier the case study about a woman, a refugee woman who was from a Middle Eastern country and uh, was working informally at a restaurant. And so she was um, she was actually attacked by her local colleagues. And that attack was motivated essentially by xenophobia and racism. And again, you know, even for refugees who manage to secure some sort of informal employment, this is something that they routinely face in their place of work, um, in addition to being vulnerable to sexual and gender-based violence at home. So for a lot of refugee women, they face this violence kind of everywhere, at home, in the workplace, on the streets, at hospitals, police stations. So it's kind of something that's perpetually around them. And what recommendations has the WAO proposed to deal with this? So again, I think the the most important overarching recommendation is that Malaysia adopt a comprehensive framework to really address the issue of refugees and asylum seekers and to grant them the right to work and other basic rights. And once we do that, then I think this needs to be incorporated into the trainings and SOPs of all frontliners, including the police, JKM, medical officers, um, as well, well as other government personnel, uh, just to raise awareness of the issues that refugees face and promote more sensitivity in the response. Um, and I think, secondly, something like a public awareness campaign, including public service announcements, uh, would go a long way to kind of helping curb the xenophobia and harassment and violence that we see in larger uh, society overall and kind of in, in mainstream culture and to start to change those attitudes and and perceptions of refugees. 
And finally, Natasha, what are your hopes for this report? Yeah, so we we hope that this report will be a resource um, for all policymakers and members of parliament. And particularly, we would love to engage in um, further dialogue around this issue of sexual and gender-based violence um, in refugee communities with the Ministry of Home Affairs, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, the Ministry of Health, and the Ministry of Women, so that we can really kind of mainstream this issue across government and um, across society and be able to tackle it in a comprehensive way. Thank you, Natasha, for joining us today. Um, that was Natasha Dandavati, the head of campaigns at the Women's Aid Organization, and she was helping us break down the new policy brief by the WAO, which looks at how refugee women in Malaysia are at an increased risk of gender-based violence while having limited access to protection and justice. And uh, Natasha also helped lay out some appropriate policy recommendations that can be used to combat these issues. Yeah, yes, uh, as Natasha also pointed out, hopefully key stakeholders, including um you know, so many policymakers, members of parliament, relevant government ministries that um, would include the Ministry of Home Affairs, Foreign mm-hmm. Affairs, Health, Women, Family and Community Development. They should all take a more serious look at this issue and come together to work on solutions. Hopefully also first responders to sexual and gender-based violence and those include the police, welfare department and hospital staff. Are, hopefully they will be better equipped to deal with these matters as well. It's really something that requires every single part of society to be involved in this, isn't it? It's yes. not just one particular ministry that can handle, you know, everything related to refugees. Yeah, and uh, you know, we hear um, in a very cliched way, whole of society <laughs> a lot yes. these days. Um, but, you know, it makes so much sense because um, they, they come through so many layers and they come into contact with so mm. many layers, uh, even the rest of us members of the public. Um, we have a role to play in ensuring that they are protected in society as well. Mm. And we've spoken to lawyers and human rights activists on the show about, uh, before about issues relating to refugees in Malaysia and one thing they've consistently said is that Malaysia doesn't have any comprehensive plan on how to address the situation of asylum seekers and refugees in the country. I mean, we don't have any concrete policies other than to not charge persons who have UNHCR cards for being here illegally. Mm. Um, and the reason typically, typically given by the government for this, for this lack of policies is that Malaysia is not a signatory to the 1951 mm-hmm. Refugee Convention, but this is not the only convention that governs how a country should treat asylum seekers and refugees. I mean, Malaysia has signed and ratified other human rights convention, uh, human rights conventions, including on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women, on the rights of the child, and on the rights of persons with disabilities. So it's not just something that you can attribute to, even when looking at the law, it's not just one something that you can attribute to one convention, but it's essentially a human rights issue. Mm, and uh, in other words, you know, if you are looking for a law to police our behaviour. Plenty out there, right? And these yes. conventions come with the obligation of uh, non-refoulement, which means that we can't, we cannot send persons back to a place where they can be tortured. And we must treat these categories of persons humanely and provide them with certain fundamental rights. So even though we're not signatory to the Refugee Convention, we are still obligated under those other international laws to come up with a proper framework to address the scenario on asylum seekers and refugees, to ensure sure they are afforded these basic human rights and that includes offering them protection from all forms of violence and not to, you know, at the very um, at the very fundamental level, not to turn a blind eye to the mm-hmm. fact that um, refugee women in our midst are going through these issues. Mm, especially in a time like now when we're facing a second MC 
CEO. I mean, these are group, uh, communities that have already faced significant impact from the first MCO mm-hmm. last year and now to have the second MCO as well. They have, they really have no avenues to seek help uh, without fearing retaliation on themselves. Yeah, and um, it, it's so... Um uh, it's such a wake-up call to hear the stories that Natasha shared because I think without hearing those, um, it's so easy to treat them as an invisible part of society. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that xenophobia stems from the thinking that, well, you shouldn't be here anyway, so why should we take care of you? But how can you, um, just as a decent human being, um, say that it's okay for another human being to be raped, um, to be abused, to be threatened by the authorities whom they're seeking help from, mm-hmm. you know? I think really just have more empathy and understand where they're coming from. You know, it's not like they wanted to have experienced whatever that they had experienced. They, um, in, in many of these cases, they had no choice but to flee their country of origin. Yes. And, um, you know, we heard from Natasha, um, it is not these, um, the impact uh, is not isolated. Mm. You know, um, uh, violence uh, from employers, for instance, or from those uh, people related to their place of employment then affects their ability to to hold that job. It affects their livelihood. Uh, and uh, we already know that um, they are in such difficult circumstances when it comes to employment in this country. They don't enjoy the benefits of um, the uh, assistance schemes that um, Malaysians can uh, uh, can enjoy, you know, panjana and things mm-hmm. like that. They, 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 they don't have access to things like that. And they're just stuck in a vicious cycle, isn't it? Yes. So... Um, um, I think what you said, empathy, um, mm-hmm. we are severely lacking in that in these times. Um, I don't know, perhaps everyone's got this siege mentality and we've forgotten about other people around us. Just developed a sense of selfishness during the pandemic. Okay, so more <laughs> more empathy, more kindness. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, do share your thoughts with us. Uh, tweet us at BFM Radio, WhatsApp us at 018789 um, to um, share anything you might have uh, about this issue that we've been discussing for today's show. Um, if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can look us up on our Facebook page, BFM The Bigger Picture. If you missed any part of the show today, um, you can check out the podcast at bfm.my slash daily digest or on our BFM app um, as well as other um, other podcast um, channels Spotify, Apple and Google um, coming up after the 3 o'clock news um, on Live and Learn there are two um, uh, discussions, conversations happening um, Hezra will be speaking to um, the editors of a, um, a book called The Lockdown Chronicles is a collection of stories from the MCO and after that he'll be speaking to um, the campus principal at Tenby School, Satya Eco Park, about um, what 2020 has taught us about um, education and looking forward to navigating um, 2021. Um, thank you so much for joining me and Suan on the show today. We'll leave you now with a few messages on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.